1: Moscow police are investigating a homicide on King Road. The cause and manner of death was homicide by stabbing. This is terrible. It's a bloodbath.
3: This is The Idaho Massacre, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. Episode 3 In Search of a Connection. I'm Courtney Armstrong, a television producer at KT Studios with Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane and Connor Powell. An unthinkable nightmare comes to life in the small college community of Moscow. Four students at the University of Idaho butchered to death in the early hours of Sunday, November 13th. The gruesome murders spark a multi-state investigation stretching from Washington to Idaho to Pennsylvania. The 48-day investigation ended on the other side of the country with the stunning arrest of a Ph.D. criminal student and would-be law enforcement officer named Brian Koberger. Moscow Police James Fry on the arrest.
1: These tragic murders took four young, vibrant lives from our community. These murders have shaken our community, and no arrest will ever bring back these young students. However. We do believe justice will be found through the criminal process.
3: Was there some sort of connection? I think that it is likely that there's a relationship between these four students and this person. From the first hours of the investigation, law enforcement officials described the murders of Kaylee Gonçalves, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodle, and Etha Chapin as a targeted attack but police offered no other information. Shannon Gray, an attorney representing the family of soon-to-graduate senior Kaylee Gonzalez, said publicly that none of the victims knew Brian Kobaker, leaving the question, how was this a targeted attack? Here's Stephanie Leideker, Jeff Shane, and producer Connor Powell.
4: I think when we all picture a murder of this size, we picture a masked killer like you see in the movies. But in reality, stranger homicide is extremely rare. This changes from year to year, but typically around 50% of all murder victims are killed by someone they know. So it begs the question, how did the accused Brian Koberger know the victims?
5: It does feel like there has to be some connective tissue in some way, either maybe they met in passing or maybe they had some sort of class together.
6: Social media allows people to know people, but not actually know them. They can follow them. They can essentially digitally stalk them. So he might have known them and they might never have known him.
4: And that's actually a parasocial relationship, which is this one-way relationship we have with, it used to be people on TV and the movies, but now with the social media, you really can intimately know someone without ever having met them.
5: And you can also see the layout to their home. We're on social media and we're doing it in our houses or outside of our houses. And that can be a real tell for anybody who's a predator.
4: As we know, the victims were frequently posting on social media, which oftentimes showed the layout of their home.
3: The six-bedroom house on King Road is tucked away in a residential area of Moscow. It's surrounded by an 18-hole golf course the University of Idaho's Fraternity Row, and other residential homes. It sits about two miles from the large commercial shopping area where the Target and Walmart are, and about two miles from the main downtown bar area.
7: About four years before the crime, I was in Moscow, Idaho, for homecoming. I was campaigning for Congress in the 1st District of Idaho, so participated in the homecoming parade, uh, Passing out literature, shaking a few hands, waving at the crowd. At the conclusion of the parade, one of my good supporters who was also in town, uh, a friend of mine and a law office client of mine, had a son who was one of the rental residents leasing that particular property.
3: That's David H. Leroy speaking to producer Jeff Shane. Leroy is a former local prosecutor turned defense attorney. He served as Idaho's attorney general. He's also a graduate of the University of Idaho College of Law and has been in the house where the murders happened.
7: So we went over to the house, ended up on the second floor in a living room area, and uh, chatted with his son and the other two or three residents who were students at the university at that time, living in the house where the crime would be committed about four years later.
4: What was it like being in there?
7: A gray, three-story building building, set in a relatively hard to get to backwater street up against a hill so that you have a couple of different levels of entry in the house to go into the lowest level is basically a almost a daylight type basement and then you must walk up a stairway to get to the second floor where uh, bedrooms and the living room area occupy the front of the house Uh, Upstairs, uh, there were additional bedrooms. We didn't visit those, but it's a three-story, set-against-the-hill structure that has uh, multiple entrance levels and multiple exit levels.
4: You were a student there, so you've, I imagine, lived in different places. Was this house typical of where a student might live in Moscow?
7: This house was uh, probably built in the 1970s, no later than the 80s. Uh, in an area that's immediately adjacent to campus. Literally, the campus boundary and the uh, uh, fraternities and sororities that ring the center of the campus against a a large hill which is topped by the University of Idaho's water tower with a big emblematic eye on the exterior of the structure is no more than a quarter of a mile off campus. Uh, It's uh, against a hill with single-family residences and other student uh, population apartment buildings and it's perhaps no more than half a mile uh, from the center of the campus uh, two-thirds of a mile from the student union itself
4: when they weren't sure who did it they thought this couldn't be that random because this house was kind of tucked away it was a little bit on it's not like a cul-de-sac but it's a little bit of a dead end like it's not a major thoroughfare what's your take on that
7: now there's no immediate arterial uh, approximate to this house You must turn off an arterial uh, and then off a sub arterial and then off that sub arterial to go up a a hillside uh, almost to a dead end uh, about 100 or 125 yards before you get to this house. Uh, To get to this structure where the killings took place, uh, you have to work at it and you don't immediately pass by it on your way to anything else.
4: So it stands to reason that whomever did this did not just stumble upon the house.
7: One of the issues that was uh, of great concern semantically uh, as these investigations were developing was whether these children and whether this house was, quote, targeted in some way. The initial observations of the law enforcement officials, the prosecutor included, were that there was some kind of targeting and it was a logical conclusion given where this event happened Uh, and the fact that uh, so many students were involved as victims. But uh, it is some place that you need to work to get to and would not necessarily happen upon, uh, even if you were looking for a random place to commit a crime.
3: Here again, Stephanie, Jeff, and Connor.
6: I went on Google Maps. I just wanted to map out where this house on King Road was. And it's really not a part of the city of Moscow where people would just sort of end up. It's not near the main bar area. It's not near the commercial shopping area. It is a really secluded little sort of neighborhood. A lot of people live there, but it's not the type of place that you would just sort of drive by. And
4: that's been confirmed by a few people that we've talked to who have actually been to the house that it's a trek to get there and you wouldn't just stumble upon it.
6: I think one of the things that is sort of interesting about the house is it really was considered a party house, which really isn't all that surprising, given the fact that there's a bunch of upperclassmen living in there, some seniors soon to be graduating seniors. It's close to fraternity row. And I think the real question is, is like, is there any possibility that Brian Koberger would have ever been in that house for some other reason?
5: And if Brian Koberger, you know, is a PhD student, whether he was invited or not, maybe he could have sort of slipped in the back door and without being spotted or would that be unusual?
6: We know that the house had parties where even the girls weren't always at the parties. I mean, there's a police record of police showing up and and none of the residents of the house are even there. They're talking to some people who don't live there. And the police are like, well, you got a noise complaint. We really need to talk to somebody who's on the lease. And so people are always coming and going from this house. But still, how do you get from Pullman as a PhD criminology student to, as you said, somebody who's kind of creepy? How do you end up at an undergraduate house in a totally different university? It just doesn't seem likely that Brian would have ended up there unless somebody invited them.
3: If the house on King Road was targeted, as police say, was it because of who lived there? Here's Jeff Shane speaking with reporter Anjanette Levy from the Law and Crime Network. Does it matter how he knew them?
8: I think it becomes relevant if he knew them because it's just another dot to connect. I mean, if he didn't know them, if he actually had never interacted with any of them, that's so terrifying if he's indeed the guilty party. What in the heck is going on? Like, why did you kill these people? You know, it, it just it. I think it's more of like an understanding. It does. It's, it's an explanation, not an excuse. Like, but I think you have to look at had he ever interacted with them, because if he's like, I don't know who these girls are. I don't know who these people are. And. I have no clue what's going on. Why would I have anything to do with these kids? They're way younger than I was. I'm a 28-year-old PhD student. I, I mean, I think it, it connects a dot if you if he had indeed interacted with any of them.
3: Brian Koberger moved to Pullman, Washington to begin his PhD studies in June of 2022. According to a police affidavit, cell phone data showed he was in the area of the home on King Road at least 12 times between August 2022 and the murders. But did Brian Koberger know or have a connection to any of the victims? Here again, Jeff, Connor, and Stephanie.
4: By all accounts, Ethan being at the house was kind of just chance. Yes, he stayed with Zanna a lot, but Zanna would also stay at his fraternity house So based on what we know now, it stands to reason he didn't know Ethan would even be home that night.
6: Ethan's Instagram profile was set to private, but it seems unlikely that Ethan was the target given the fact that his social media presence was pretty limited and there's no connection between Ethan and Brian Koberger.
5: What a horrifying thought too, that this could have been a missed night for him, you know, the sliding door of that. What was it about that particular day in the alleged assailant's life that said, today's the day. It just makes you think if he had gotten a flat tire or if he had caught a cold or if the, the light was red and not green, something maybe could have shaken him out of this morning and who knows, maybe four people could still be alive. You know, this is the stuff nightmares are made of.
3: All three of the female victims, 21-year-old Kaylee Gonsalves, 20 year old Zana Kernodal and 21 year old Madison Mogan had public Instagram accounts, and all three roommates regularly posted to social media, including TikTok. It doesn't appear that Madison, Kaylee, Zana, or Ethan knew Koberger. None of them followed anyone by the name of Brian Koberger on social media. However, Kaylee Gonsalves' father, Steve, has said there are connections between his daughter and Koberger, but he has not commented on the possible connection.
4: With so little information coming out at the beginning, there was so much speculation about the victims and the accused and their movements around the murders. As we know, Maddie and Kaylee spent their final night at the Corner Club, which is a popular bar in downtown Moscow. And people had speculated that maybe Koberger had been there, he was a regular, that he he met them there, he saw them there. There's been nothing to say that that's true. It's possible.
6: Yeah, it's not addressed at all in the probable cause affidavit. It's not addressed by investigators at anywhere. Um, It's just pure speculation. Sure, anything is possible, but there's nothing linking Brian Koberger to the corner club, either that night or previous nights. And, you know, that's one of those sort of rumors that I think has kind of been shot down, but it doesn't seem that that is the connection between Brian Koberger and the four victims.
5: There was also a rumor or there were reports that Zana and Maddie, as we know, were both waitresses at the same restaurant, and one of the unidentified workers from that restaurant claimed that they remembered Koberger attending there because he had a very strict diet and had very specific diet requests, but that ended up becoming unfounded as well.
3: Reporter Anjanette Levy also went to the Mad Greek restaurant and spoke to people there.
8: I have been to the Mad Greek and nobody at the Mad Greek that I spoke to recalled ever seeing him there. And they knew the young women who worked there, you know, Xana worked there and Maddie worked there. So the people I talked with at the Mad Greek did not recall ever seeing him there.
3: The owner of the Mad Greek, Jackie Fisher, also issued a statement that said there is no evidence that Koberger ate at the restaurant. Let's stop here for a break. We'll be back in a moment.
2: at purdueglobal.edu.
3: Online and media speculation about a possible connection between Koberger and the victims has largely focused on some type of social media connection. Did Brian Koberger digitally stalk Zanna, Maddie, and Kaylee? Again, Stephanie, Jeff, and Connor.
5: According to People Magazine, Koberger followed Maddie, Kaylee, and Zana before the account was actually deleted, meaning his account was deleted. There's no mention of the other two roommates. Is that enough of a connection? And again, is this just rumor? The outlet also reported that Koberger messaged at least one of the victims. They didn't respond. But then apparently, Brian Koberger reached out again and again and again and again and again. Is that stalker mentality? Or is that just somebody on social media who wants an answer on something? And now that's getting blown into something larger.
4: I actually looked for myself in terms of did Brian follow them? Because as we know, the victims' profiles were mostly public. And, you know, if you search through Kaylee's followers, for example, there are. Brian Koberger profiles who follow her, but now there's a bunch of them, so it's clear that there are people out in the world who are making accounts with Brian Koberger's names following these victims, which that level of depravity is disgusting, but to me that indicates that we as the public don't know for sure if he followed them. Of course, officials might know something we don't, because what People Magazine reports that two weeks prior to the murders in late October, he allegedly sent a message to one of the victims basically just saying, hey, how are you? but he didn't get a response and kept repeatedly messaging them over and over again.
5: What is a person supposed to do? Somebody reaches out to them on social media or DMs them and they don't want to engage, so they just ignore. But yet that ignoring somehow gets potentially obsessive for the person who's not getting a response. There's no right or wrong answer
6: seems very plausible and it makes sense that Brian Koberger was probably using social media to contact him. I mean, that just as we're trying to find an answer for what's the connection, that seems like very likely, right? But, you know, an unnamed source and People magazine, like how much do you want to actually grab onto that and say, yeah, this is uh, this is concrete. It, It still feels like until we get it from Investigators, it, it still feels like just a theory and just an idea as opposed to something that you can be like, oh, yeah, th- that definitely happened. That That is, for a fact, you know, the connection.
3: Here's Jeff Shane speaking with Anjanette Levy from the Law and Crime Network.
4: Knowing him, though, is such a loose term. I mean, she could have matched with him on Tinder and said, oh, no, thanks. I don't want to go out with you. And he latched on to that and she wouldn't have known him.
8: You're, you're right. And I, I was actually told that some of the people on Tinder, I was told that some of the kids in that area use Tinder for networking and stuff like that, not just for dating. But I don't know whether that's true or not. Some Maybe there could have been some type of Tinder connection. I don't know. But as far as them interacting and, you know, hey, I, I, we went on a date or we're friends or what have you, I, I'm not aware of any connection like that. And, and frankly, I think the fact that he went to Maddie's room first, that to me says a lot. So. Was she the target? Did he somehow interact with her at some point in time? I don't think we know these things.
3: Could Brian Koberger have seen one of the women online and tried to start a relationship only to be ignored and rejected?
9: They don't consider murdering women a hate crime, but I think a lot of these cases are pretty much fall into that sort of category where you have white men who are rejected or, you know, not, they don't get what they want when they want it, and that's why they do it. And it's just such a, like this incel mentality like where they're just, so like women should just be like, you know, falling on their knees to me. And that's not the way the world works. And then they're just so bitter about it that, you know, everything isn't working out for them that suddenly the world's against them and, you know, they're a victim and it's, you know, poor me.
3: Chris Bargo is a reporter with the TV magazine show Inside Edition and has been covering the Idaho murders. He spoke to Stephanie and Jeff about Brian Koberger's dating life and what he found out about Koberger's often creepy interactions with women.
5: Have you heard that he was an incel? Because Jeff and I were talking about that, and it seemed like it was a bit of a perfect example.
3: An incel is an internet term that describes young men who are frustrated by their lack of sexual experiences. It stands for involuntary celibate. Incels have often been known to lash out at women when rejected.
8: Hey, it's me, the girl that went on a Tinder date with Brian, Um, we matched on Tinder.
3: Chris Bargo interviewed a woman named Haley Willett, who went on a blind date with Koberger when they were both college students. She posted on social media about her disturbing interaction with Koberger and his inappropriate, incel-like behavior.
8: I recognized him immediately and my heart just sank because I couldn't believe that like I was face-to-face with this guy.
9: So about two weeks after the arrest of Brian Koberger, a young woman named Haley shares her story on TikTok that she went on a date with Brian Koberger about seven years prior. She said they matched on Tinder. They talked for a few hours. They went to the movie. It was pretty inconsequential. They drove back to her dormitory. He parked and she said that she thought they were maybe going to talk. She then said she's going to go up to her dorm room and that's when she said he invited himself up with her. Now Haley's very clear that she didn't really feel threatened and she wasn't scared. She just kind of thought he was a very clingy sort of guy. So she said because she's socially awkward she didn't really know how to say no and she let him come up and That's when she said things really started to change. He suddenly became very pushy, and he kept trying to touch her. And when he would touch her, she would say, what are you doing? And he would say, I'm not touching you, and then get very serious about it. And she just said it got to the point where she didn't know what else to do. So she excused herself to go to the bathroom and then made it sound like she was loudly throwing up. But instead of leaving, he just stood outside the door. So she just stayed in there and waited until he finally left. Then when he did finally leave, he texted her that she had great birthing hips. Haley did not ever speak to him again. And she really posted this as just sort of a message to women saying, like, you know, trust your gut. If you think something's off, do the right thing and just get rid of the guy. And again, she said she wasn't afraid of him. She just thought he was an awkward, kind of clingy guy that was probably more into her than she was into him.
5: Wildly creepy.
4: And tell us, like, what was her disposition like?
9: Haley just seemed like someone who was trying to make a point of sort of sending out a message to other women that, you know, like she said, just trust your gut she did not seem to be looking for any sort of fame or notoriety she wasn't out courting you know interviews or anything if anything she was turning most of them down and she of course was dealing with a horrible backlash of people trying to dox her and people saying horrible things about her wanting to know what she looked like back then versus now grossly misogynistic things that happen to pretty much any woman who comes forward in any of these cases even if they're not involved It seemed like at one point she was getting more hatred for this murder than the actual suspect. But she, you know, she was very clear that something was off about him. And this is one of the few people we had spoken to or seen in the media at that point who wasn't from his hometown, that just kind of knew him as a one-off. And there were very few people that we could get like that.
5: Just the idea that you can go on a blind date with a person who, you know seems nice enough, to your point, seems to come from a nice family, not a bunch of zombies. You know, you check a bunch of boxes, he's educated, he's on the right track, and come to find out you just dodged a real bullet by locking yourself in the bathroom.
3: Kohlberger's troubled relationship with women only seemed to continue and often even escalate during his brief time at Washington State University. In addition to being kicked out of a bar in Pennsylvania for harassing the waitresses, Koberger lost his teaching assistant job at WSU around the time of the murders.
4: Brian Koberger's behavior at the school had been flagged by Washington State University.
5: This is a really big deal. The out-of-state tuition is $50,000 at Washington State University. So his teacher's assistant job was a really big deal and very important to him. This going away is a real life changer for him.
6: Coburger didn't come from money, right? His parents had filed for bankruptcy at least once. And to have your tuition paid for for a PhD program is a pretty big deal. But over the course of the fall, what we really see according to all these reports, is that his professors in the criminology department are really troubled by his behavior. And it seems like some of that behavior is how he treated undergraduate female students and other women in the PhD program.
5: And is that because he's just odd and awkward and doesn't really have a great sense of social cues? Or again, is this a tale of a real psycho in training?
4: But there are some things we do know. Koberger was not the most inspiring educator and had a tendency to talk down to people, especially female students. He would grade them harder and kind of be demeaning to them. We know that on September 23rd, about a month into his role as a TA, there was an altercation between him and his professor, John Snyder, who was kind of his, effectively his boss. Then just a couple weeks later, on October 3rd, Koberger and members of the faculty of the School of Criminology had a discussion about the norms of professional behavior and what to expect moving forward.
6: Yeah, I mean, norms of professional behavior, that's the phrase we've heard a lot. There's other reports that he gets into a screaming match with uh, another female student who leaves the room because of the way he's talking down to her. So, I mean, when you talk about norms of professional behavior, it just doesn't sound like he's acting in an appropriate way. And I think that really is what we're talking about in this entire story of Brian Koberger is the way he views women, the way he treats women and then ultimately what he does to women.
5: It's interesting because by all accounts from what we've heard, he comes from a very loving family, so again, it doesn't really fit the familial MO for someone who's air quotes anti-women.
6: No, not at all, but it, by the end of December, by the end of the first term, Washington State University pulls his TA position funding and, you know, he essentially has to now come up with that tuition, you know, $50,000 to cover his program. He's terminated from his teaching assistant position. And so his behavior, imagine what you have to do to get that teaching position just, you know, yanked from underneath you.
5: Someone allegedly broke into the woman's apartment and moved things around. Instead of calling police, the coworker called Coburger, who suggested and helped her install security cameras.
3: Investigators are looking into if Koberger was behind the break-in and used the cameras to spy on his colleague, Stephanie and Connor. Can you imagine if this is
5: actually accurate? I know all of this is unanswerable in this regard, but we want to be able to know that the scary person is obvious. And this doesn't seem obvious enough to me.
6: It doesn't seem obvious, but there definitely is a pattern here. I mean, this behavior towards women, whether it was when he was home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania and getting kicked out of the bar there, or it's at WSU, you know, the way he's interacting with undergraduates and other PhD students. Oh, and by the way, he also got kicked out of a program in high school as well. So when you see him on paper, he looks like a really well put together person, but there's a lot of these stories that are coming together that really fit a pattern of somebody who has real serious problems.
3: But the allegations of Brian Koberger's disturbing behavior at WSU don't end there. Police are investigating a break-in at the home of a female coworker. Let's stop here for another break.
2: at edu.
3: If Brian Kohlberger was digitally stalking one of the women in the house, many have speculated that either Kaylee Gonzalez or Madison Mogan were his primary target since they were killed first.
4: Kaylee was set to graduate early and had actually moved out of the house and was only back in town to visit her friends, show them her new car, and just have a fun weekend. So she's not living in this house. We know that Kaylee was sleeping in Maddie's bed because we know that that's where she was found. They were both found in her bed. So if Koberger had been digitally stalking or physically stalking any of these girls, he would have seen on social media that Kaylee was back in town. Could this have been the reason why he struck on that night in November?
6: There's multiple photos from that weekend of all of the roommates together with Ethan as well. And so if you're digitally stalking, you see that Kaylee's in town, the the roommates are essentially all back together, which is kind of what they were saying was how great it is to be all back together. And he might have seen that.
5: Can you imagine too, again, maybe had they not posted on social media, the car or where they were, or just how happy they were to be together, maybe he wouldn't have known.
3: Here's Stephanie, speaking with Chris Bargo. If you don't like gay
9: people and you commit a crime against a gay person, it's a hate crime. If you don't like people of a certain race and you commit a crime against them, it's a hate crime. But what if you hate women? What if you are like these young men who feel so entitled to female affection, and then when they don't get it, they carry out these crimes? Why isn't that a hate crime? And why aren't we focusing on that aspect of it? Because that seems to get lost in the mix. And being a woman in this day and age is just... Negotiations, especially when you're with men, it seems like, you know, how you're going to behave, how you're going to treat them. You modify your behavior based on the way they're behaving to protect yourself. If you're on a date with someone for the first time, if you're maybe going to go home with someone, you have to sort of map out all these things because you don't know the person they might become once you get into their apartment or they get into your apartment. It's very, very scary. And even on a more sort of casual level, if you're talking to someone and you just don't want to be mean or you just don't want to be outwardly rejecting of them and you're just nice that niceness can get misconstrued and then used against you as some sort of leading them on. Or, and it's, it's ridiculous.
5: The relationship between them, well, him, I should say, and is it Kaylee?
9: We still don't know for sure that there was any specific target. It would seem, however, that early suggestions, for whatever reason, have focused on Kaylee. And Kaylee was getting ready to move out. She got a job in Texas. She just bought a new car. She's going to be working at an IT firm. Everything is sort of coming together for her like she was beginning her life as an adult and then she went out with her friend madison that night zanna had gone out with her boyfriend the other two roommates were also out they all get back to their apartment and then where it gets crazy is the time frame because zanna gets his DoorDash delivery at 4 5 a.m and at 4 20 a.m the suspect car is seen speeding away how do you murder four people in 15 minutes
3: Kaylee's father, Steve Gonsalves, has said in several interviews that his daughter's wounds were significantly more brutal than Madison Mogan's.
0: I'll cut to the chase. Yeah. Their means of death don't match. They don't match. Yeah. Their, their, their points of damage don't match.
3: According to her father, the knife wounds were deep and slashed open Kaylee's liver and lungs. This type of attack is often described as an overkill. It's typically a sign that the victim was an intended target rather than someone who just happened to be there.
4: Zana's dad told the press that when she was killed, she had defensive wounds, some of which were so bad that her fingers were almost cut off, implying that at some point she'd maybe tried to grab the knife as it was being kind of lunged at her. So is it possible that maybe she surprised Koberger after hearing the other people were killed and he was on his way out? We also know that Ethan's neck was slashed which would imply that he was not in bed, but maybe somewhere in the room, in the doorway, is what we've heard. So while Kaylee had the deepest wounds in comparison to Maddie, without other information, it's hard to know exactly what that means.
6: Yeah, Kaylee's dad has mentioned that her wounds were way deeper than the other roommates. That's obviously something that investigators are looking at.
3: While impossible to know yet who Brian Koberger was specifically targeting, There are disturbing details about his final days in Pullman, Washington before driving home. Here again is reporter Chris Bargo. I personally think that he knew he was not
9: gonna be able to go back because he wasn't kicked out of the program, but he lost his TA position. And if you are a TA, you get an in-state tuition and they waive it for a year, and there's all these sort of allowances. But if you're not a TA, you have to pay full out of state and suddenly he has to pay like forty-eight thousand dollars to go back in the spring. That's a huge leap for someone who didn't really have a job before that. So I don't know that he would be able to do it. So either he moved everything out of that apartment knowing he wasn't coming back, or he actually lived like that, where there was no shower curtain, there was, you know, like a, a stripped mattress. It was no furniture in there, like one TV. And I think that when the when the public defender came to get the stuff, she took like a TV, a CD tower, and like a monitor. And that was it. So it's just sort of a very bare bones, chilling sort of setup.
3: More on that next time. For more information on the case and relevant photos, follow us on Instagram at KT underscore studios. The Idaho Massacre is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Connor Powell, Chris Bargo, Gabriel Castillo, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Music by Jared Aston. The Idaho Massacre is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts like this, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your
1: favorite shows. I'm Deanna, who you may know as Body Movin'.
10: My friend and I, John Green, were featured in the Netflix documentary, Don't F with Cats. On our new podcast, True Crimes with John and Deanna, we're turning our online investigative skills to some of the most unexplained, unsolved, and most ignored cases.
6: Police say 33-year-old Bridegan was shot dead.
10: Gunned down in front of his
6: two-year-old daughter. Detectives confirmed that it was a targeted attack. It appears to
4: be
5: an execution-style assassination. This is very active, so we have to be careful.
8: I've heard that there's a house that has some bodies in the basement. I knew. I just knew
4: something was wrong. Maybe there's something more sinister at play than just one young girl going missing. If you know something, heard something, please, it's never too late to do the right thing.
10: This is True Crimes with John and Deanna.
4: Production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. Justice is something that takes different shapes or forms.
10: That's trinityschool.org, Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life, transform the world. I'm Katya
5: Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.